and welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. My name is Caroline Liefers, and it's my pleasure to be talking today with Dr. David Gerber and Dr. Bruce Deerenfield, who recently published a book together entitled Disability Rights and Religious Liberty, the story behind Zobrest v. Catalina Foothills School District. It's a pleasure to be speaking to both of you today. Thanks for having us. Indeed, thank you. Would you mind each introducing yourselves to our audience? Bruce, could you please start us off? Sure, I'm a professor emeritus of uh, modern American history at Canisius College in Buffalo, New York. And uh, I have spent a lot of my life studying our political system and, and in particular religion and public education. And I'm currently uh, quite involved in studying the civil rights movement, writing about that. Uh, I'm a professor of uh, emeritus of American history at the State University of New York at Buffalo. <clears throat> I've spent most of my career as a scholar uh, writing about personal and social identity in a wide variety of instances, including disability. And while uh, unlike Bruce, I haven't uh, dealt with law in my scholarship extensively, I have taught a course on the First Amendment, both the religious clauses and the free expression clauses for about 25 years. So I'm very familiar with a lot of Supreme Court cases because I teach them regularly. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Now, is this book your first collaboration? I'm curious about the origins of this particular project. It is our first collaboration. And uh, the way it happened is that uh, David gave me a call and wanted to know if I'd join him. And I had known David for quite a long time as we were both involved in the um, <clears throat> separationist uh, movement that is keeping religion, church and state separate. Uh, and so uh, I thought it would be a wonderful opportunity to work with, uh, with David. I value very much uh, the opportunity to work with Bruce because of his extensive uh, scholarship in regard to uh, the uh, religion clause of the First Amendment <clears throat> and his extensive knowledge of how to go about investigating the uh, stories and creating narratives out of the stories of Supreme Court cases. That makes sense. So David, had you stumbled across this case at some point during your research? Is that what happened? Well, I stumbled across the case um, in my teaching because it was in the textbook I regularly used. And as I got more involved in disability, I thought to myself, uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to teach both my First Amendment subject, but also to think about disability in the context of the First Amendment. Uh, two things that don't normally get juxtaposed with one another. Um, there was another thing about the case that attracted me to it. Usually these cases, the decisions in the cases are um, far removed from the story of the people involved. Uh, mostly, sometimes you just get a name of the litigants. But in this decision, in the very first paragraph, uh, James Zobrist is mentioned, his age is mentioned, his high school is mentioned. And um, it suggested to me that there was a backstory that might be worth investigating. And it mattered, too, that 
I did part of my growing up to the extent you could speak of Tucson, Arizona's having any suburbs in a community almost adjacent to where the Zobris live. So the story had immediate appeal to you. Yeah. Yes, in a variety of imaginative ways. Mm -hmm. Now, why did the two of you think that really from the outset, it was important to share this story? Well, I'll just speak a little personally here. I have a disability myself and it's along the lines of what Jim Zobrist had, although I don't have it as severely, but I do know what it is to be treated dismissively or people pass you by or don't want to engage you or don't want to repeat uh, and the kind of negative feelings that people have about your intellect, uh, even though I've had a, a, a successful career uh, more than most uh, in my area. And so that's tough to take because uh, you know you have ability, but people won't give you a chance. So it was a personal thing. And uh, I uh, thought, Jim's story was worth telling on its own. Um, I think that uh, what Bruce has said is very material to the whatever success we were able to achieve in our collaboration. When we began our collaboration, I had no idea that Bruce had a hearing impairment. And watching him warm to the subject as he thought about Jim Zobrist's life in the context of his own life added all kinds of energies to what we were doing. And uh, that was really both um, sort of inspirational and very informative to me. I would add to what Bruce said about uh, disability, uh, my own ongoing interest in the very general uh, problem of why people file, file lawsuits. Um, lawsuits are tedious, expensive, involve all kinds of heartache and inconvenience. And the, uh, the Supreme Court, of course, only accepts three to 5% of the cases that petition to be heard by it. I had a colleague at Buffalo, I participated in law school colloquium for years, who uh, made a career based in large part on uh, the uh, disability law uh, in education of asking the question, why do people file lawsuits when so much is stacked against them succeeding? And I was always interested in this question. And you know, we Americans live with a lot of myths about ourselves, one of which is somehow prevailing against the odds and somehow getting justice in spite of all the disincentives involved in doing it. It's a very American story, you know, immortalized in a lot of film. And uh, I was sort of enthused by the prospect of following the Zobris down this long, expensive, and difficult path of seeking justice. It was also possible to learn a great deal from the participants. So many of them are still alive. So that presented a <clears throat> unusually attractive opportunity to tell the history uh, as fully and as accurately as we could. Actually, speaking on the subject of the participants, why don't we start introducing our audience to this cast of characters? So who are the Zobrests? Um, well, the Zobris, uh, Larry and Sandy Zobris, the parents, were a couple who, both of whom uh, were from Western Pennsylvania, working class ethnic backgrounds. They met while they were attending different colleges in Erie, Pennsylvania. 
and uh, got married and had their first child was Jim, who was born. Bruce, 1974 was Jim's birth date. I think that's right. Right. Um, and uh, Jim was their first child. And uh, Jim was uh, determined at some point during the first year of his life to be profoundly hearing impaired. Um, in pursuit of Jim's education, the Zobris made all kinds of choices and all kinds of calculations, one of which ultimately involved their moving to Arizona to enroll Jim in a uh, uh, state institution in what was then, I believe, suburban Tucson for part of his early uh, education. Uh, that was part of the long and, uh, and twisty road that led to their decision ultimately to place him outside public schools and into a Catholic high school. And we follow them through these decisions and different places in which they lived and made the decision. I would uh, add that Jim Zobrest was uh, a fun-loving uh, guy who had a number of passions, including movies and, and basketball. And he really wanted to be part uh, of the hearing world. Now, whether that was something that he had, was led to believe uh, by his parents, or it was something Jim always had is, I guess, impossible to uh, sort out. But he, uh, when the period we're studying, he wanted to uh, be part of that world. Sandy, uh, the mother, Sandy Zobrist, uh, impressed me constantly with her incredible energy, drive, uh, David has already mentioned the family picked up and moved across country to try to help their son uh, get a better uh, start in his education. And uh, her willingness and um, vision to create organizations, uh, to mobilize uh, people, to uh, question, to seek out help for her son uh, is just, uh, it's admirable and it's uh, impressive all at the same time. Mm -hmm. I, I would add that uh, one more thing about uh, the family. Uh, I would emphasize the younger brother, Sam Zobrest. I think Sam uh, from the earliest get-go uh, learned um, some basic um, sign um, language and often helped Jim, worked with Jim, was Jim's uh, not alter ego, but someone that he could rely on. He knew, knew his language and uh, would help him in social situations. We conducted almost 30 oral history interviews, some of them quite extensive, where uh, as much as it was possible, the lawyers on both sides of the uh, case, both for the school district and for the uh, Zobris, um, we interviewed uh, some of Jim's teachers at uh, Saw Point uh, Catholic Roman Catholic High School. We interviewed um, people involved in his education in public school prior to the decision to send him to um, Saw Point Catholic High School. And uh, we interviewed classmates of uh, his where we could find them, including one fellow who was, was he in Abu Dhabi? Yeah. 
yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So we did a lot of extensive interviewing with a lot of people who were directly and um, sort of indirectly involved in the lawsuit and could fill us in on the history of the Zobrist family and on Jim's own history as an adolescent. And some of the close friends of, the, of Sandy Zobrist too were quite candid. That's excellent. I'll be asking you more about the interviews in a moment. Now, you've already mentioned, of course, that Jim would go to Sal Point, a Catholic high school, a private Catholic high school, in fact. And from my understanding, the Zobrist felt this was important for both his moral and his academic development, if you will. But this decision to move him to a private school for high school would put him in a way on a collision course with the question of how the Education for All Handicapped Children Act ought to be interpreted. So can you give us a little bit of background on what first is the Education for All Handicapped Children Act and why would it come to be at the center of this story? Well, the, that law, which was enacted in 1975, uh, enshrined the basic principle of FAPE, the free appropriate uh, public education, so that children with disabilities would be entitled to education, to, to mainstreaming in effect. Uh, and that is the basis on which Zobras believed that they had a right to an interpreter, a sign interpreter, wherever they uh, took their, their child because the government said it was for uh, helping children with disabilities. It wasn't quite that simple, but uh, that's what they believed. There was an ambiguity in the law about the appropriate, uh, uh, the law being appropriate to private education, let alone re religious private education. So the question mark hung over that instance of education um, in the laws it was written and interpreted to prior to the Zobrist case. So effectively, we'll just clarify this for our audience, they needed to challenge the Catalina Foothills School District in this case, correct? Because it was the Catalina Foothills School District that would be effectively providing the interpreter, although the interpreter would be working in a private Catholic school alongside Jim, is that correct? Yes. Okay, good, good. So we'll obviously get to more of the legal details of how they have to pursue this case through the courts. But in the meantime, Jim is, of course, going to high school. As we well know, the U.S. court system moves quite slowly, the legal system. So in the meantime, talk me through what Jim's high school experience was like. I think it was a mixed bag. If you, when we talk to some teachers, librarians, and coaches, uh, they would describe Jim as fitting in very well and that he was he could be the life of the uh, uh, group that he was uh, uh, hanging around with. And we do know that he would eat out with friends and uh, you know he was on the basketball team. And uh, from a distance, it appeared that mainstreaming uh, in uh, that school was working well. But I think it's very telling that Jim uh, Zobrest told the editor of the school yearbook that he really didn't have close friends because most people found most people with hearing, full hearing, did not want to take the time to communicate with him beyond a hi, how are you, and uh, you know, a wave, uh, and 
that kind of shallow interaction was uh, very frustrating for him. And even when he pinned his hopes on the basketball team, that was really his first love in school. The reason he went to uh, South Point offered a better athletic program. Uh, he didn't have friends on the on the team. Uh, so, and then gradually, the he was not. Although he played quite a bit in his freshman year and some as a sophomore, uh, as he graduated to the varsity team, he just did not play very much, uh, which was deeply disappointing and alienated him from the school environment. I would add to that in an oral history interview with Jim in 2015 and our follow-ups, what Jim remembers about high school isn't close friendships and hanging out with his friends, but rather the awkwardness of his relations with his classmates and how reserved they were in approaching him because of the difficulties they uh, anticipated in communicating with him. You know, one of the things I think that provides a context for thinking about Jim's experience is that Jim's parents and by extension, Jim, began to face the questions of his education at a time, sort of the crest of the um, disability civil rights movement and independent living movements, uh, in which we conjured the belief that we could make disability disappear. And mainstreaming was uh, not only desirable, but absolutely uh, possible to the extent that disability wouldn't be a factor in people's lives. Um, with people who are profoundly hearing impaired because of communications issues, um, that's a much more complicated issue. And um, I think that one of the problems that Jim ran into consistently was the difference between expectations that the Zobris began his education with um, and the reality of the problems that he faced in communicating with, with peers during a crucial point of his, his growing up. Um, you know, deaf adolescents and little kids um, may be among all dis disabled people, those who profit most from uh, being together and learning to communicate first by being together. That's what's often said about the foundation is of ASL in, in language. That was not Jim's foundation in life. Um, so some of Jim's experience was an ongoing revelation of difficulty rather than an open path to opportunity. And I'm not sure the Zobras were completely prepared for that, uh, the, those bumps in the road. Although they accommodated themselves by learning from experience, of course. One, one could say that Jim was happier in junior high. Uh, that is the public school before he went to South Point. I'm not commenting on whether that happiness or unhappiness was connected to being in a public school or a religious school. Uh, but maybe just the age. Uh, he did have a very close friend in uh, junior high who did not come with him to senior high. 
and indeed a lot of the students uh, went in different directions. They, they did not go to the religious school. The other thing that I might add here is that when Jim thought back on his high school career, he said his happiest day was graduation day when he was leaving. Now, he also said that uh, if he had to do it all over again, he would. He would go back to South Point. But I had the feeling it was kind of a close call. The socialization experience, I think, from his point of view, was, was, not, was disappointing, certainly. And Bruce has described it, exactly how that played out for him over those four years. Mm -hmm. At this point, the Catalina Foothills School District was effectively refusing to pay for Jim's interpreter. So I understand that the family was essentially spending their own money and soliciting donations and basically scraping together what funds they could in order to provide the interpreter. They were, they were desperate. Uh, and uh, the expense was, oh, at least uh, $8,000 and upward a year. For the interpreter. For the interpreter, excuse me. And they were people of uh, middle-class uh, status. And uh, they wanted this experience. It certainly testifies to how much the Zobres family wanted to send him to South Point and pay the tuition and pay for uh, the interpreter on top of it when they were having business problems. Uh, and uh, it wasn't easy uh, at all. In fact, the school itself, uh, the principal got involved in trying to raise uh, money for them. So it was a very difficult thing, uh, but it shows you the kind of commitment that the family had to this sort of educational experience. And then on top of the, the money that the interpreter cost, of course, there were the legal expenses that they faced in uh, ever escalating as they got further up the judicial uh, system. Uh, justice in the United States, particularly at the levels that they came to want to pursue it, can be very expensive and intimidatingly so, of course. Um, and that was another factor in uh, some of the desperate moments they had between filing suit in 1988 and getting to the Supreme Court in 1993. Yeah, let's actually pursue that question. That's an important one. So. Tell me about the initiation of legal proceedings, I guess I could say, you know, did they recognize that this answer of no from the Catalina Foothills School District was sort of not good enough and that they had a chance of, of pursuing some sort of legal mechanism to change it? And what got them really down this road? Well, it was kind of serendipity. Uh, it happened that Sandy was uh, making a telephone call to Jim's first teacher back in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania. And during the course of it, uh, Sandy told her friend, Jenny uh, Ball Duncan, that she was being given the runaround, that she was very frustrating that she was having this difficulty. And uh, the other woman, uh, Jenny, Jenny Ball Duncan, said, well, have you talked to my, my dad? And Sandy knew Jenny's uh, father, but why would I want to do that? And Jenny uh, explained that her father, and in fact, she didn't use these words, but one of the top constitutional lawyers in America with a special interest in um, safeguarding uh, the rights of 
those students who were going into religious education, uh, getting an education in a religious school. And uh, so this fit uh, William Bentley Ball, the father's um, plan to continue to try to protect Catholics in particular, although he did work with other groups as well, to protect their religious liberty, as he called it. And so he became involved in the case. Uh, and there was a, a local part too. Uh, I should mention that this particular case in order to be handled was going to have to be handled in the federal court system because they were making the argument that their constitutional rights, their American constitutional rights were being impinged upon, that is for religious freedom. And uh, so Sandy also went to uh, the local legal aid society uh, to try to uh, get some support there. And um, the man who handled the disability section of that uh, society was a, uh, a man called Tom Burning. And uh, Mr. Burning was uh, sympathetic. He was very sympathetic to the Zobras, but when he went to the board of the society, they thought, what are you talking about? We're, we're not on this side. Uh, we're on the side of separation. And uh, Tom Burning uh, made some convincing arguments on this society, joined them. So uh, the Zobrests were going to have to go into federal district court. Yeah, the court operated in Tucson. Or would, the case would be heard in Tucson initially. And then if the, when they lost, that case had to go up the line to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in San Francisco. And then from there, if you lose, then uh, either party could appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's kind of the trajectory uh, of the legal process. It's important to sort of add the element of uh, forceful personality and willfulness uh, to the story. Sandy Zobrist had a number of uh, encounters with the Catalina Foothill school system, uh, asking for a decision and asking for them to rethink their decision on not cooperating in paying for Jim's interpreter in a Catholic high school. Um, their uh, councils told the school district that this was constitutionally impossible because of the establishment clause of the constitution requiring a degree of separation or complete separation between church and state. Sandy came to feel that um, not only was that uh, uh, a wrong interpretation of the constitution, uh, but she also came to feel that um, she wasn't being taken seriously uh, and that she was being patronized. And uh, Sandy would not, Zobris would not put up with that at all. Uh, she had one encounter with the completely benign, decent superintendent of the Catalina Foothills School District on an evening where um, they were going to hammer out once and for all what was going to happen. And in his what I think was probably a calm, meditative, reassuring voice. He said to her, we have many fine public high schools here. Let us help you to find the one that is appropriate for Jim. And she threw the tone of voice and the, um, uh, what she took to be patronizing, uh, got her disgusted. And she threw, she, in her own telling, and I believe it's probably true, 
she threw down her papers on the table. She had a friend with her and she told the friend, I'll be in the parking lot. You can meet me there. And uh, the friend came out in a few minutes and said to her, you know what he said? He said, uh, I don't care how mad she is as long as she doesn't sue us. Now this is Sandy's memory, but it's a, it's a symbolic sort of reference point for her emotions. And she is said to have said to her friend, he doesn't know me. And that too, in her mind, and I believe my, with the familiarity we gained about her, that there might be a strong element of truth about that moment. It's a cinematic moment, really. Um, uh, that uh, probably that sort of inspired her against all the odds that she probably had begun to feel uh, would militate against succeeding. That probably inspired her to um, carry on with that. Yes, and she, of course, she had surmounted so many obstacles of different kinds all along the way. This was just one more, albeit the uh, biggest one. You know, it's important to add, and I think the, <clears throat> the audience for the podcast probably would be listening for this, and they'd be quite right to. It's often the case in these families that the mothers run interference in these situations between children and the bureaucracies that stand in the way of kids with disabilities getting the assistances they might need. And Sandy was very much the uh, spokesperson for their family uh, and very much the one who was in control of the decision-making process of how they would proceed and if they would proceed. One thing that we should mention uh, before going further is Sandy's commitment uh, to her son was so great that she became a college instructor of sign language. <laughs> the father uh, never really got very, very far into this, uh, could do some finger spelling, we understood, but the mother became an expert. Uh, of the kind of sign language she uh, practiced. So given that um, the issue of church and state is of course an old one, and there had already been some major cases that had wound their way through the courts actually on this issue of state funding for aspects of religious education. Do you think that the Zobras initially had much hope of success? Well, uh, there's always hope that your case is going to be the one that cracks open the wall of separation, right? Uh, but there were some signs that uh, they might get a favorable hearing. Uh, there had been several cases uh, in which the court said that uh, states are permitted uh, to share textbooks, uh, to loan textbooks uh, between public school districts and uh, what we used to call parochial schools or religious schools. Uh, and then after World War II, the courts, uh, the US Supreme Court said that uh, it's perfectly all right for a public school district to provide busing uh, of parochial school children to their religious school. Uh, and over time, there came to be more and more uh, benefits uh, uh, for one thing, the Supreme Court said it was possible to have uh, testing, diagnostic testing for speech and hearing, uh, uh, maybe any psychological uh, condition that you might have. 
uh, even a scholarship. Uh, it might be possible, and it was possible, uh, for a, uh, a, a person with vision problems to get a state scholarship to go to a Bible college. So, uh, uh, and the court had enunciated certain theories which could be used in other contexts, such as the child benefit theory or the equal treatment theory. So, and, and then Ball was, uh, William Bentley Ball, the attorney was, I think, ever the optimist. Uh, you know, he, he didn't win all the time, but he was willing to carry the fight uh, in the hope of getting additional um, openings for support for religious uh, people in religious schools. Mm -hmm. uh, there were, on the other hand, a series of cases that in the um, 70s in particular, and also the mid 80s, which suggested that they were still going to have a very tough time. Uh, one of these was the lemon test, which created a three-part test that made it very difficult. Uh, you, know, you might satisfy two of the three prongs of this test, but in doing so, you'd violate the third prong and therefore the aid to students in a religious school might be uh, invalidated. So it was, it was not obvious that they were going to win at all, I would say. Uh, I think what Bruce has said uh, is really the background that you need to know to understand the law. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to take an example of the kind of question that might come before the court in understanding how to rule in the, in the Zobra's case, Jim wanted to take an interpreter paid for with public funds into a cat, Roman Catholic high school. In a Roman Catholic high school, the day starts with mass, and there are subjects um, having to do with religion. Uh, everybody has to take theology. So here you would have the case of someone... Uh, who would be implicitly a public employee, although the money would have gone to the Zobris to pay the interpreter. The interpreter wouldn't have paid, been paid directly by uh, a government entity. Here you would have had the case of someone who was implicitly a public employee interpreting Catholic theology. And in the jurisprudence that then existed, it was very hard to imagine how anything uh, resembling this could be anything other than an impossibility for the Supreme Court. And there had never been a case where a public employee in a religious institution had been paid. That's very interesting. Yeah, they're seeing their interpreter more as an employee and less as a neutral tool. Yeah. Well, that, that was that was the uh, view of the justices and judges who opposed uh, uh, this arrangement. Mm -hmm. Interpreters and uh, with their strong sense of professional ethics and their uh, expansive uh, sense of how they function in the classroom. And uh, they don't like the drift of that argument and I don't blame them. Interpreting is interpreting. The interpreter isn't a translation machine. There are concepts in Catholic theology which don't lend themselves easily to explanation in oral language, let alone in sign language. So uh, this was a, you know, a highly sort of fraught and complicated subject for the court to encounter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance there. How was their case treated in the first couple levels of the court system, if you will, the district and the circuit courts? Well, uh, it was tough sledding, let's say that. Um, at the federal district court, the judge, Richard Bilby, 
thought that the, the matter was rather easily resolved because the interpreter did not provide the kind of service that the Supreme Court had said was permissible. That is, the interpreter was neither uh, did not provide diagnostic or therapeutic help. And so that was forbidden in a parochial school. I thought it seemed open and shut. Uh, and then the other part was that the interpreter was in a uh, parochial school where he would invariably promote religion by translating prayers and Catholic theology. And then Bilby uh, offered this kind of um, remark, which was kind of dismissive. Uh, he said he had a childhood friend who was deaf and therefore he knew all about deafness. Uh, he was also Episcopalian and he claimed he know, knew all about what Catholic uh, theology required. So he was not the most open-minded uh, judge in the case. So the, he decided uh, against the Zobras, who then took the case up to the Ninth Circuit Court, uh, usually regarded as the most liberal um, of the circuit courts. Uh, there, the, uh, there were two very liberal uh, judges, Betty Binns Fletcher and Stephen Reinhardt. And uh, they argued that the interpreter would create a mm -hmm. symbolic union. That was a phrase the court had forbidden. You cannot have this, an action uh, that creates a symbolic union between church and state. Mm -hmm. So that violates the lemon test and the establishment clause of the first amendment. Uh, there was a dissenter, however, who kind of pointed the way to the future and, and the Supreme Court uh, would pick up on this dissenter. So let me send, spend a few moments talking about him. Uh, Thomas Tang, uh, he's pointed out that the assistance, the state assistance, went to the student with disability, not to the parochial school itself. So it wasn't that the parochial school was really benefiting other than tangentially. Uh, it didn't need Jim Zobra's tuition money. There would be someone else who would have filled that position. So that was one thing. Uh, in other words, it's the recipient. We've got to focus on who's actually getting the benefit. It's the student with a disability. Secondly, not the religious institution. So he didn't see a violation of the First Amendment. And secondly, Tang pointed out uh, that the interpreter is not creating religious content. Uh, that's what the school did or what the teacher did, but the interpreter simply passed along the information that he was, uh, was given. It may have had a religious message, but it didn't mean that the interpreter was a, an instrument to promote it. So those, uh, those uh, findings uh, would be picked up uh, later on. Uh, the Zobras were very frustrated by how long all this took. And uh, they wrote a rather curt letter <laughs> to the judges telling them to get with it. And then um, their attorney, William Bentley Ball, he sent along a little message himself. Why This is not complicated. This is not General Motors. It's you know, uh, why, what's, what in the world is taking you folks so long? 
uh, and eventually they they did decide, and, and then it was you know a couple more years before the Supreme Court got it. One of the things that I think is suggested by uh, what Bruce has said very strongly is at the center of this case is hearing impairment and a profoundly hearing impaired adolescent. And at the center of the case is interpretation and, and language. And the um, legal authorities, uh, those who were dismissive of complexity and those who seemed willing to embrace it, really did not know a lot. And that was present through the majority decision in the Zobris behalf. They didn't spend a lot of time asking themselves questions like, what do interpreters actually do? Is a interpreter, a human being, uh, a machine? Is that possible? What does sign accomplish in regard to the expression of very complicated concepts? that might emerge in the, the teaching of theology. These things were not uh, deeply inquired into by the, uh, the courts. Bruce, would you I, Let me just say one thing at that point, David. The courts seemed to have no interest. Yes. They didn't understand it. They didn't care to find out about it. So this case involved far more uh, religious establishment questions, religious liberty questions, and it did uh, disability. After the Zobris won their case, a professor at Gallaudet University um, wrote an article saying what they don't know might, what they didn't know might profit us or some, that was some title of that. So help us. Help us. Um, and it, it was really emblematic of exactly uh, how it was that the court had reached a decision that did indeed help people with hearing impairments in this limited context of uh, public-private uh, religious school uh, contentions. But there was, as Bruce said, not only was there little knowledge, but there didn't seem to be a great deal of motivation to develop that knowledge. Jim was a vessel for reaching conclusions that had to do with uh, constitutional questions outside the reach of his parents and his own aspirations. And indeed, the school district, and, and I would argue even uh, William Bentley Bali for the uh, uh, petitioners, they were much more interested in religious establishment questions than they were disability, as, at least as how they argued the case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like the court's relative lack of familiarity with disability issues became clear when they arrived at the Supreme Court. And you describe in your book some dramatic moments. And so what happened there? Well, uh, when, the, when, the, when their day came in, in court in Washington, uh, there was a case before the Zobrist case, the Lamb's Chapel case. Mm, another case about schools and religious freedom. Yeah, the Lamb's Chapel versus Morich's Union case. Mm -hmm. And, but everybody's gathered, you know, before they, even if you're there for the Zobrist case, you've got to be there for the Lamb's, Lamb's Chapel case. And uh, so it appeared that the uh, interpreter that William Bentley Ball had arranged for was late. And so the proceedings are going on and yet there are several people in the audience who simply have no idea what's going on. So William Bentley Ball's daughter 
Jim Zobrist's first teacher, uh, swiveled in her chair to turn around to the people uh, who needed uh, interpretation. And she began to interpret for them. And uh, the authorities, uh, what the heck are you doing? Uh, you know, get back in line and uh, you're creating a disturbance. We can't have that here. Uh, and then when the um, interpreter that uh, had been arranged for finally arrived, that interpreter was off to the side, the opposite side. And so the people who needed that service could not really see well. So Sandy Zobrest at this point starts motioning the person you know, uh, to move over uh, to their side and, and the uh, kind of the police uh, jump in and say, what are you doing? Sit down. And there was a real feeling that they were going to be kicked out of the uh, proceedings uh, for um, disturbing uh, the Lamb's Chapel case. There weren't that many people who needed the interpretation, but of course, even one person deserves to have that sort of accommodation, especially when you have people there who can do it. And how did things go for the Zobras at the Supreme Court? I mean, I suppose we're giving away the ending here, but how did the Supreme Court ultimately rule? Well, um, let me just say one thing about uh, the oral argument. Uh, William Bentley Ball decided to crack a joke in his argument. And that's a risky venture because typically is a very solemn uh, proceeding. Uh, no one's amused. Uh, you know, Queen, the Queen used to say, uh, we are not amused. Uh, well, the justices were kind of that way too, generally. And they yeah. never get really beyond a little sarcasm. So uh, Ball tried this joke in which he suggested that uh, it was farcical to think that students with um, full hearing would uh, be upset to see this interpreter in chemistry lab. Mm -hmm. Ball kind of tries to play down the possibility that the interpreter is um, bringing together church and state, if you will, by kind of jokingly pretending to be Jim's classmates and saying, guys, guys, you see this fellow who's making those signs? Well, it's like awesome. Right here in Chem Lab, we're seeing a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. And uh, uh, the justices, uh, apparently, I guess everybody else was laughing uh, by the absurdity of this notion that constitutional questions would accompany the mere presence uh, of the interpreter there. As to what the court decided, oh, and the court decided that uh, this was really a question of religious establishment because they argued that the interpreter was uh, like a human hearing aid, uh, that he served a mechanical function. And uh, I already discussed what Thomas Tang, the judge in the Ninth Circuit Court, argued, well, that, uh, those ideas were picked up by William Rehnquist, the author of the opinion, Chief Justice. Uh, he pointed out that, Rehnquist pointed out that any government program that assists a broad class of citizens without reference to religion is legal. And in this case, 
uh, it wasn't the government that decided where Jim Zobrest should go to school. Jim Zobrest and his parents decided that. Further, that uh, the religious school did cell point did not materially benefit from the Zobrest decision. And because the interpreter was viewed as a kind of a machine, uh, the interpreter did not materially advance the uh, school's religious agenda. So um, that, that was kind of uh, it in a nutshell. Did this case attract a lot of media attention and public conversation at the time? And if so, I'm curious about to what extent the conversation was about the religious freedom or question or about the disability question. You mentioned that the courts were much more concerned with the issue of the establishment clause, right? And relatively ignorant on matters of disability and deafness. And I'm curious about the public conversation about this. Well, both uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times to mention too, uh, gave it quite a bit of coverage uh, just before and just after. Uh, because they saw this as a potential, well, maybe game changer, potentially a game changer if the wall of separation was taken down or destroyed. Uh, in any case, had the potential for doing that. Uh, as it happened, uh, it didn't uh, do that. Um, uh, you know, one fell swoop, but it was part of an ongoing effort to accommodate uh, students in, in attending religious schools. And in this case, a person who needed support or accommodation for his disability. So, but after the case, uh, I, I don't see much media attention. There was a, a strain of the journalism that went in a, a slightly different direction. The Zobers were interesting people. The backstory was interesting. Um, it appealed to that element in American mythology of little people demanding their rights that's been immortalized in, in movies like Frank Capra's movies from the Depression era. Um, and Jim was a compelling person. Um, he was articulate, smart, very handsome, um, and very outgoing at the time. And uh, when he was interviewed, he made a he was a compelling presence in an interview. So the uh, you know unlike the some of the cases that come before the court, for example, that involved maritime law or matters of corporate uh, finagling, um, you know the the Zobras were three dimensional American people, and that too was part of the uh, the interest in the uh, in the case that appeared in. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily less serious publication. Well, I would say that USA Today is a popular daily newspaper that has less weighty content than the New York Times or the Washington Post. And it did have some articles on the Zobers. I'd add to the um, interest in the case, the vast number of friend of the court briefs that were filed um, in behalf of one side or another in the litigation by people who wanted to influence the judges? Uh, I'll add one thing. One of the reasons I think there was interest to the extent there was interest in the case by the media 
is the obvious injustice. Here is someone who's capable, who wants an education, and the one thing that's keeping him from getting it is having an interpreter that the school district can afford, that he, you know, when he was attending the school district in junior high and elementary school, he did have an interpreter that the school district paid for. So it, it seemed, you know, just let him have the interpreter. It seemed, uh, the injustice seemed obvious to most people. Sandy's point that she made in a variety of contexts, both during and afterwards, was this is about one kid who wants to play basketball, right? And the separationist organizations uh, whose interest in the case we followed knew that one of the weakest points in their um, view of the case uh, wasn't the constitutional law, which had favored the school district at every level, the advisory level, and as Bruce has described, uh, in the adjudication levels in the federal courts, it was the compelling figure of the one kid who wanted to go to high school to play basketball. And, and William Bentley Ball knew that. And he knew he had an attractive litigant. And he was going to milk that for, for all he could. And at the same time, the separationists, like those at Americans United for Separation of Church and State, they were very concerned. Uh, they told us that the plaintiff is a very attractive person to put out in front of this uh, matter, and we might lose just for that reason. Very, very interesting. This is an aside, but I found this utterly fascinating as a Canadian, because of course we have publicly, a whole publicly funded Catholic school system here in Alberta that operates alongside our secular school system. So I found this fascination with the separation of church and state and how that should be enforced to be really, really interesting. Our societies, in spite of all they have in common, have very different foundational yeah. uh, histories. Indeed. And this matter was of the greatest importance to some of the founders of the American Republic. The thing about Sandy is her feeling about the rights that she was due as a patriotic American, right? She made this point to us that she was patriotic, that her uh, male kin had served in one war or another. I think her brother was in Vietnam. Um, she just insisted on, on her rights. Um, she felt that as an American, she was due these rights. And she wasn't going to have anything other than a respectful uh, hearing. Yeah, yeah. And of course, she's also paying tax money or her family is paying tax money that is going to fund, if I'm correct about this, the Catalina Foothills School District, right? So there's that argument too, yeah. Their property taxes, I mean, Catholic parents have always claimed in the United States that they were doubly taxed for education. They paid property taxes uh, directly or indirectly if they were renters that went to finance public education and then they paid tuition for their children. Uh, at Catholic schools. And this was a tension in the existence of uh, what was used to be referred to as parochial education in religious schools that pervaded the discussion of equity in the context of uh, those who sent their children to uh, religious schools. And this is what William Bentley Ball, the attorney for the Zobras, had been <clears throat> adamant about and had spent most of his a legal career trying to make sure that uh, uh, this kind of double taxation stopped. 
So tell me a little bit about the legacy of this case. In what ways has Zobrest, which was decided in 1993, has it, has it come to matter for the legal world and particularly the lives of people with disabilities? I, I know about a very important case in which uh, Zobrist was material to the uh, justices reaching another conclusion. Well, I think it, the case has been influential on two levels. Um, Sandy tells us that she has gotten over the course of many years, letters from people in the same situation that they were in in the 1980s, having to uh, butt their heads against local school districts that um, were still arguing within the framework of the ambiguities of the law in spite of the uh, case, the resolution of their case. Uh, and we saw some, uh, some evidence of this in her archive, which she let us look at. The Zobers case has been uh, mentioned as precedent in a variety of cases that the Supreme Court has heard. Uh, and there was one case in particular that I think was uh, really quite important. It reached a large number of, of students in the New York City public school system. The court had ruled in a case involving the following facts. Um, poor kids enrolled uh, with their parents paying tuition, sometimes getting some help with that in the form of scholarships, but putting out money to help pay for their kids to be enrolled in, a Catholic, in Catholic schools. Poor kids with learning disabilities, and I believe in some cases developmental disabilities, were under a program begun with the best of reasons by the New York City public school system uh, that involved using after school uh, public resources to help these kids with their educational deficits. The court ruled in the 1980s that this was an impossible thing under the constitution, under the first amendment, that it was an obvious case of establishment. And um, the city of New York had gone to all kinds of lengths to protect its program against that judgment, but they couldn't pass constitutional judgment on that. Then in the aftermath of the decision against that program, they went to all kinds of lengths to find a way to help these kids after school. Uh, it cost a tremendous amount of money. They had kids individually riding the subway alone so that they wouldn't have to be on buses financed by the school. So, you know, all kinds of parental nightmares. After Zobrist, with Zobrist in mind as a precedent, uh, Justice O'Connor, the first woman appointed to the uh, US Supreme Court, uh, wrote a decision when the case reappeared in, I think, in the belief of the uh, New York City school system that now it had an opportunity to make a different argu uh, argument and more successful. Justice O'Connor, uh, in I believe it was the first paragraph of the rehearing decision said, the decision that we reached in the 1980s is no longer good law. Um, that's a paraphrase. Maybe it's not the exact quote, but she came very close to saying Every once in a while, the court looks at what it's said after reaching a decision in another case and says, wait a minute, in order to achieve consistency and justice, we've got to go on record as changing our minds. And in this New York City case involving, you know, tens of thousands of little, poor little kids whose parents were struggling to educate them in religious schools, 
the court changed its mind and Zobris was a foundation for changing its mind. I promised I would come back to this issue and uh, it's the issue of interviewing people. So of course you were able to interview the Zobras as well as many other people for this story, which is a, a wonderful thing when a historian gets a chance to do that. Did doing these interviews change your perspective on this story or change your approach to this project? Uh, well, I think it made us more, more aware of the motivations and the character of several key people, um, Sandy being one of them. And I think uh, her husband also, it was, we began to realize that uh, Larry Zobrest was a traditional uh, father and uh, he really let his wife or his wife took charge. I don't know which way to describe it, but she did take charge and he uh, focused more on traditional breadwinning uh, responsibilities. I had hoped that we would get to know Jim Zobrest a little more, but I think we learned as much as we could upon seeing with him, seeing him and talking to him, so to speak. So that, and then the, talking to the teammates, some of the teammates and the real nature of what was going on there, because that was Jim's preferred um, area. We just sense the kind of frustration. Um, the fellow that we talked to from the Middle East, who was Jim's longtime friend, uh, he gave us additional uh, insight. So we did, I think, have a greater and deeper appreciation for the story that we were able to communicate. We wrote two books and weave them together. One was a jurisprudential history of a lawsuit, and the other was the backstory from the compelling human point of view. And without those interviews, uh, the latter of the two narratives would have been impossible. Mm -hmm. It was the oral history that allowed us to, to fill in the details of that uh, backstory, the emotional and intellectual and uh, familial uh, uh, details of the, uh, the Zobris story. Here's another thing. Virtually everybody we wanted to speak to, we did speak to, but there were two groups that uh, did not um, avail, make themselves available to us. And one was uh, some players on the basketball team, including the coach's son, who was kind of a rival of uh, Jim Zobrest and prevented him from playing because he was a you know, coach's son and also I think a better player. Uh, but we couldn't get to very many people on the basketball team, uh, nor could we get to as many teachers and administrators as we hoped. And we've tried to think about why that was. And one thought that comes to us is that maybe some of them either didn't know Jim that well, didn't have that many things to say, or were perhaps were embarrassed by not working with him or befriending him. Uh, and uh, for whatever reason, we couldn't reach some of those people. Now, I'm very satisfied with what we did, but you always want to get as many as you can, you know? Were the Zobras enthusiastic about the idea of having two professors 
writing their story. How did they feel about that? Well, I think they were very, they were very quite enthusiastic. And uh, I think one of the things that you need to know about them is that they were not strangers to dealing with the uh, press, nor strangers to dealing with people who um, came to them years later, as we ultimately did, and uh, were writing uh, essays about the, uh, the case. So they had been interviewed uh, after the decision was rendered, I think in two other, by two other uh, people, one a constitutional scholar, maybe both of them constitutional scholars. Um, and they'd been interviewed by, the, by TV and uh, journalistic print media as well. Um, were they enthusiastic about us as academics doing a sort of conventional academic treatment? I don't think they could have imagined at the start when we made contact with them in 2014 or 15, how um, thorough we needed to be, the depths of uh, analysis that we needed to plumb to satisfy ourselves. I think that was a surprise. But on the other hand, there was never a moment in our dealing with them in which they expressed impatience, Sandy in particular, and said, aren't you guys done yet? Uh, that moment never, never came. They uh, opened out their letters and uh, you know, other material, personal material to us. They wanted this, us to have all the things we said we needed. Gratifying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for, for sure. Yeah, of course. Now, Bruce, I want to ask you this question in particular. Much of your research and teaching deals with the history of the Black struggle for justice. In what ways do you see the history of the disability rights movement as akin to the more uh, familiar, if you will, civil rights movement? And in what ways is it different? Uh, <clears throat> there were quite a lot of similarities, but of necessity, there were some important differences as well. Mm -hmm. Let me just begin by noting that uh, disability rights movement did not start, you know, at the time of uh, some of the laws we've been discussing in the late 60s and 70s. It didn't start then, but it certainly benefited from the civil rights movement, as did a lot of other uh, causes, such as the women's rights movement. Uh, uh, and it was a time of uh, social ferment. Um, the anti-war movement, uh, the um, free speech movement, uh, the student movement, uh, change was in the air. And I think it certainly uh, helped motivate and mobilize uh, disability rights activists as well. Um, because one of the goals of these other movements was the idea of inclusion. And certainly the disability rights movement is about that. Uh, and then marrying that idea of inclusion with the American values of independence and participation. Similarities. Uh, the issues, a lot of the issues were the same. Access, integration, access to transportation, housing, public services, attending the school that you want to attend. Uh, another similarity between these two movements is that there was a wide base of supporters. Uh, for disability rights, the parents of disabled children, those who are disabled themselves, those on college campuses, uh, progressives of one uh, stripe or another. Uh, 
people who had been active in other movements like Judy uh, Human or uh, Ed Roberts uh, or Gerald Baptiste. Uh, they had uh, participated in the free speech movement, anti-war movement, civil rights movement themselves. Uh, the growth of organizations uh, like the civil rights movement, you know, had the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the NAACP, uh, uh, the Urban League, uh, SNCC, uh, you name it. Uh, and in the area of disability, disabled in action, American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities, which is a coalition of 65 different groups, National Association of, of the Deaf. Somebody has to provide money. Someone has to have agenda. Someone has to send out people, have lawyers at the ready. So those things were uh, similar. Uh, and then tactics. Uh, the disability rights movement engaged in a, a lot of the same tactics as the civil rights movement, such as lobbying uh, legislative uh, bodies, uh, or um, uh, and then some of the key laws like the Education for All Handicapped Children Act or the Americans for Disabilities Act, um, testifying before Congress. I mean, one of the reasons to go there is to educate the people who are going to decide whether uh, a law would have um, basic protections, such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you know, addressed several different groups, but it did not address disabilities. So that was going to require further education, uh, lawsuits. Uh, and there was direct action in the form of blocking traffic, you know, stop the usual procedures of, of life. Uh, uh, there was a march on Washington and the disability rights movement, several. Uh, there were sit-ins in uh, federal buildings. The longest sit-ins uh, <clears throat> were not done by the civil rights movement, but by the disability rights movement. Uh, there was even the uh, you know, media attention event like the Capitol crawl uh, in 1990 to make sure that the Americans for Disabilities uh, Act would be approved. And there were a whole series of laws that came about, the Architectural Barriers Act, the Urban Mass Transit Act, the Rehabilitation Act, and so on, Air Carrier Access Act. There was also this similarity. Some activists in the disability rights movement came to the realization that focusing on Washington or federal agencies like HEW, Health and Education Welfare, uh, was not enough. And that in putting so much energy into that form of organizing, neglected necessary grassroots organizing on the local level. Differences. Uh, one of the major differences uh, with the disability rights movement is that disability is such a broad category, encompassing so many different kinds of conditions and requiring so many different and sometimes subtle uh, accommodations, whereas racism involves one factor, skin color, and one solution. Uh, other differences. It's much more difficult to organize. The disability rights movement has been much more difficult uh, because each disability tends to have its own coterie of supporters. Well, you're gonna have to, in order to have an entire movement you're going to have to convince uh, people who don't have these specific disabilities that they, that people with disabilities, are a group. 
and therefore they deserve rights as a group. And a lot of the effort in Washington was to convince Congress that people with disabilities are a class. And eventually that did happen. Uh, so another problem flowing from that is that it was very difficult to, to get the necessary financial resources because each um, subcategory of disability had only support for itself. But in order to run a reform, you're gonna require much more. And the th a third major difference uh, in the area of organizing is that it was uh, almost impossible for people with disabilities, the disabilities rights movement to use a hammer at the voting booth. In other words, people with disabilities did not vote as a voting block. Whereas as we've seen with the recent election that black people, African-Americans usually vote as a voting block <clears throat> and there can be consequences if you don't uh, vote a certain way. Um, another difference is that the disability movement has had to focus much more on education to show that those who don't have disabilities, that those who do deserve equal access and equal treatment. Uh, over time, it was somehow easier to think that those with racial differences were skin deep. In other words, we're the same. We're all the same except for the skin color. Uh, that took time. <laughs> Certainly it took time. Uh, but I think it's taken longer. And some people still do not really see those with physical and mental disabilities as being discriminated against so that continues to be a, a problem that has to be addressed. But those are some of the similarities and differences that occurred. Yeah. Since you've now both done so much thinking on this legal history of disability justice, do you have thoughts about current day, present day laws that should be passed or are likely to be passed to ensure equity or that you hope or expect will be challenged or amended? I'm wondering if you see the legal system and um, the making of laws itself as an important venue through which the disability community will continue to be working toward justice. It, it does seem to be. I thought about this question that uh, in anticipation of our interview, it does seem to me from conversations with uh, people with disabilities that I regularly encounter and work with in a variety of contexts in the community, that the protections in regard to employment uh, really need to be strengthened enormously. Uh, the unemployment rate among people with disabilities is really often alarming. And of course, they're very vulnerable in times like this of economic contraction. So I would, I would think that high on the agenda has to be strengthening uh, in, uh, guarantees of uh, struggles against uh, discrimination and employment. And I would expand that actually, there should be affirmative action for employment. Uh, and uh, you know, this is one of the issues that Jim Zobrest himself has had, getting a, uh, having a career, a meaningful career. Uh, so, you know, government has singled out certain groups for uh, trying to help them get going in effect in our society, economically speaking, uh, one could argue, one could see that affirmative action for those with disabilities would be another area. Another 
um, concern that might be addressed is uh, the habit American society has of, of putting people with disabilities, certain kinds of disabilities in custodial institutions uh, rather than making it easy for them to live with uh, in their own home or with family. And then incarceration is a problem. Uh, in fact, uh, a lot of the uh, people who are in prison, 15% of the men and 30% of the women uh, have mental illness. It's really that that they are guilty of rather than uh, crime. And then still we are not where we should be in terms of accessibility, whether it's architecture, transportation, or the physical environment. So those are four areas that uh, need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. This is a large question, but I hope you'll indulge me nonetheless. Now that you've finished your book and it's out in the world, what do you hope that the field of disability history or the larger American public will take from this story? My, my own feeling about uh, the book in the context of how it might uh, influence the writing of history is I'm a social historian by practice. And I've done what we began to call in the mid 20th century history from the bottom up. What I'm proudest of in, about our book and what I think I would offer as a, as by way of sort of advice on um, going forward with the history of disability is the vitality you can achieve by tying events and processes that exist at the highest level of society or politics or culture with the movement from below of real three-dimensional people involved in daily life. Um, I think our, the, whatever success we might have achieved in the book uh, in tying together the narrative of the jurisprudential development with the narrative of the Zobris everyday life and uh, trying to achieve the goals that they had, the aspirations they had, uh, is the thing that I would be proudest of. But I'd offer it also as a way of writing history with real vitality that not only tells a good and important and truthful story, but it also in its way is inspirational. Because whatever one feels about the zobrous pursuit of what we might call normalization, which is uh, not a word that's very compelling for most people in disability studies, they were people with great with great courage and determination. And there's a lot to be, uh, there's a lot to be considered uh, in watching people like that function to change the world, right? And by watching, I mean writing their histories from below as well as from above. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very American to think that progress is inevitable, but I would want readers to take this idea also from our work. And that is where you get in life is often depend on the moment in which you seek justice, that you seek opportunity. And oftentimes the effort to seek, to obtain those uh, desirable uh, ends depends on the time in which you seek it. And it was by 
pure happenstance that the Zobrest won because their case was delayed. If they had come up when they were supposed to come up, they would have lost that case. So the composition of the court changed. So we tend to, in America, think, well, the law is the law. And, you know, originalism and the Constitution is frozen in time. And uh, so it's important to realize that the Zobrist weren't foreordained to win. They could have lost. And uh, so we, we think we're always getting better as a society in America, but um, it's not always so. As the case of, of race alone illustrates. We're still fighting these old battles. That's very thought-provoking. Thank you both for your comments, for your time. I have so appreciated this conversation. A pleasure to be with you today, Carolyn. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.